Hello and welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, where we break down the health tech news every single week. This week, we are joined by another special guest, Tara Humphrey, who is an expert in all things primary care and beyond. And we are delighted to hear from her as we discuss some of this week's story. But welcome, Tara. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really good. The weather this week has been absolutely amazing. So I'm really happy. Good. How have you felt about the weather this week, you and James? Not positive. It's been very warm. We've been in some uh, we've been in some great events while we've stifled and uh, melted. But other than that, yeah, it's been lovely. It was a it was a strange um, yeah coming together of of two two things that shouldn't really go together: the incredibly hot weather and the requirement to go into London. Those two things really should not combine when you're having to deal with trains and tubes and then just rooms full of people. <laughs> like, yeah, the heat really, uh, really, really was offensive in all honesty, but, uh, it was also offensive to my garden now that I've got into gardening. So, um, yeah, I'm having to really just deal with a lot of upkeep on the lawn at this point. And so it's, it's really on a knife edge. It's really on a knife edge, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're doing what we can. It sounds like you guys fall into the category of like, you know, the people that go, oh, it's too hot. <laughs> it's like, it's too hot. It's ne- this, this, this is never too hot ever. <laughs> that's, that's a fair accusation. <laughs> uh, so before we jump in, Tara, what's been keeping you busy this week? I always love watching all of your content across various channels, keeping us up to speed on what you're up to, where you are and who you're chatting to. So tell us. It's been really, I was thinking, I like, I love my job. It's so varied. I think on our Business of Healthcare podcast, I recorded a a solo podcast on my experience of personalised care planning for my daughter that's transitioning from primary school into secondary school. And that's been a real, it's been really interesting. Um, In primary care networks, I mean, we talk about money all the time, just making sure we're all clear on the finances. NHS guidance, there's so much. I think in the last six weeks, there's been like 12 documents. So just making sure I'm clear on that and just making sure the team are good. What else have I been up to? Podcasting. We've got a couple of, co- we've just launched our fourth cohort of the new Nutri- Living the dream, Tara. Nutri- just living the dream. <laughs> new GP partnership course. So yeah, there's a lot going on, but I'm really, it's all that luckily, touch wood at the moment, it's all the things I'm happy to be doing. Nice. Good. And are you training for anything at the moment? You usually have a big challenge in the pipeline. Oh, do you know, I feel like I, I have got a 50k in the diary. Oh, sure. But you know, I don't. Sorry, sorry. No, you you, you, you just said 50. I think it. you made a mistake. You just said 50, five, zero. <laughs> I got a 50k in the diary, but I don't think I'm going to do it because I don't, yeah, my heart's just not in it. I am absolutely, I, I'm like slow and steady, but I've discovered hit and I just love it. Like I would much rather, mm. since I've got a whoop, I am all about high intensity and I don't, yeah, I've, I quite, I, I'm not very fast when I run. So I can do ultra distance because I'm really slow. <laughs> I find it more of a challenge to do like 45 minutes on the Peloton, but I really like it. So I may, I did think I'm one of these, I always say I'm not going to do it and then I'll, I'll do it, but I'm, my heart's not in it. 
fair. I mean, my heart definitely wouldn't wouldn't be in a 50K, but my heart is very much in the peloton. And I see those numbers that you are cranking out on a daily basis, and I can only aspire to those. All right. Well, our first story today is some research that was announced and launched at Confed Expo, one of the few events that we didn't make it to this week because it was hot and there was a lot going on. But uh, NHS Confederation and Google Health commissioned Ipsos to undertake some research into public attitudes around using health technology and concluded that the majority of the public are happy to use health tech to avoid going to hospital. What they said is that more than seven in 10 people would be comfortable using technology such as wearables, health monitoring devices, we've already name checked one earlier there, whoop, to better manage and monitor their health and would be willing to share that information and data gathered with their doctors and other healthcare professionals. So it sounds like they surveyed a decent number of people, so just over a thousand, to understand their appetite for using tech to self-manage their care. So Tara, you've had a good read of this one. What is your take on this? Listen, I didn't think that was just over a thousand people was a good number of people, respondents. However, I did think personally, we are a big fan of health tech and my daughter has got type 1 diabetes. We use Omnipod, which she wears on her body. We always use Dex, we also use Dexcom. So without those wearable pieces of technology, she would not be able to manage her condition like whatsoever. And when we, and then if we were to go to the doctor or the, the hospital, we'd be in the dark about what the data is telling us. So I am a, a massive, massive fan. And as she gets older, hopefully the interaction with secondary care will decrease and decrease and decrease and that she will become the expert. So I think that not everybody, I think there is a balance between we want the tech and we want the know-how and want the independence but sometimes it's helpful to just be reassured by somebody um so I don't think it it depends what your condition is and it depends how well you manage it and if you've got any other complications but I think you know like we probably all fall into cohorts and if you can manage it well the tech is great but I wouldn't want to never be able to speak to somebody yeah, and I think I think that's interesting, isn't it? That ultimately, I think this is something we've talked about quite a lot before, which is about the fact that healthcare is inherently about people and requires that human touch. And where technology can play best is where it enhances that. It creates greater space for people to have those human interactions. It creates greater context for those human interactions. So those interactions therefore become more valuable. It comes at an interesting time where we know that not just the NHS, but health systems around the world are so stretched and they are looking for, ultimately looking to the public to manage their own health within the confines of their own home without setting foot in a hospital because the resources are so scarce. So, you know, that that's interesting to me. But I think the other thing that's also interesting was what they said here about the confidence which with, with which people say they would be happy to share that information with the NHS and healthcare professionals. And actually that's contrary to some of the conversations we've had this week where we were at the Health Tech Breakfast Club with Albion BC and, and you know other partners as well who said that ultimately people 
are seemingly reluctant to share that information because they don't own their own data often. And so therefore they feel reluctant to share it with others in the healthcare system because they don't know where it's going, how it's being used and what the benefit is. But I suppose this is talking very much about wearables. And I guess I wear an Apple Watch and I know that I own that data, although I'm sure Apple uses it. So I know that that's my data and mine to share. So I guess if I'm freely sharing that, then perhaps that that makes a difference. I'm not sure, but I think that trust piece is really interesting. I think it is different. I think if you've been diagnosed with a long-term condition and you're wearing a health device to help monitor that. I think that's different from having an Apple watch and then seeing, you know, like what you buy and what you (laughs) sleep and how many steps that you walk. So I I think there is a difference. And I think I, I can understand why people, there'd be high trust in working with a medical team to use your data to help you stay safe versus just your general health and wellbeing and lifestyle data that you would, you would give away. But it's interesting that you say that because I've got my healthcare data. I don't know what I do with it. Apparently it's really <laughs> valuable. Like I don't like I'm not. I don't know what I'm doing with it. I've just got it. Um so time will tell. But I'm people are very precious over their data. But I don't know what I I don't it doesn't I don't do anything with it. I I've just got it. Yeah. That is an interesting parallel, isn't it? That probably as someone who has a chronic condition or you know a condition that they are managing that perhaps you would be more willing and want to share that information whereas yeah if you're not unwell like what is the value in that and as you said like what do we do with it how are we using it we are all rich in data um you know by data standards and so but we're not we're not feeling that value or the benefit so i I guess there are you know those two different experiences there One other thing I just wanted to add, I think this is from the patient's perspective, but in my world in primary care, it's interesting. I've just been rereading the um, recovery plan and we're trying to get GP practices, all of them to go on cloud-based telephony. So there's a really big, um, you know, like there's a really big gap in patients want devices, but yet in general practice, not in all of them, but in some of them, you know, like they wouldn't be able to handle patients coming with their data or giving it to data when they're so behind, when, you know, they're being incentivized and paid to just change their telephony systems. Yeah. And that chimes in with some, you know, discussions we've had on this podcast before with um, with other uh, people from primary care in that this is sort of inevitably taps into that discussion about remote wards, which obviously a big thing for government in their, their healthcare strategy and um, digital health strategy. Um, in that like this is really positive from a from a patient perspective and to hear like that people would trust if an nhs professional told them they you know they could wear have a wearable rather than go into hospital and you know that trust goes goes up even further over the age of 75 if i've read this article correctly um but it, it is it is that point about making sure that the pathways are there um to support um the use of technology instead of secondary care. And I think, um, you know, we've had people on who've, who very much said that if it, if you are pointing people towards primary care to support the use of remote ward technology or, vir- or sorry, remote monitoring technology in virtual wards, um, you need to make sure that there is capacity in primary care to actually cope with that influx of data. Yeah, 100%. And the culture is there, the mindset is there that they want to embrace this technology. And the skills, I guess, because 
you know, looking at that data is not, it's not obvious to everyone what that means and what it can do. Just because you're a doctor, it doesn't mean that you inherently understand it. So there's also that education piece that I think is often left off that, you know, in terms of understanding the why, but also what it means. And that's patients and doctors, but I think for doctors in particular, where you have these generations coming through. Yeah, I agree with you guys. I think just going back to this article in in terms of what it's actually trying to communicate. So this whole like, you know, 72% of people would use tech to avoid going to hospital. There's not much I wouldn't do to avoid going to hospital. So if using tech is going to avoid me going to hospital, like, of course, I'm going to use tech to avoid me going to hospital. Um, So that's not particularly a revelation, but I appreciate what you guys are saying that it's actually more about, you know, the trust behind that. And it's suggestive of that. I think the only thing that I would probably add to what you guys said is that it does feel a little bit political, this article, or at least the message behind it, because it feels like what what is happening here is a broader kind of movement trying to start, or at least piggyback and, and, and get back up, which is this move to preventative community care. And the, co- the, the quote from Matthew Taylor, the chief exec of NHS Comfed, um, just points the government directly and just says that from wearables to hospital at home, digital healthcare is already helping the NHS get people healthier, intervene earlier, offer more tailored treatment. Although the government must recognize that additional funding, both for digital and capital, will be needed in order to fully grasp these opportunities. So it's a, it's a real sort of point here that they're trying to make they've they've done this study and it seems like they're now pointing these results directly at government to just say like hey this is the direction we now want to go we we can see that there's trust we can see that there's this we need some action here and they he does go on to say that you know the government's recent commitment to accelerate the the use of the nhs app will help strengthen the public's understanding of the benefits of digital engagement so again that's not that, that's measured. That's not like just saying like, oh, hey, we should just be using more digital. That's saying let's use the NH app to increase the public's understanding of digital engagement and what's possible. And it feels to me like what they're trying to do here with this study and with other activity that's going on, like you've mentioned, Hugh, is that it feels like there's an actual commitment to trying to make a change here. It feels like there's an actual kind of movement behind this um, from this level, from the level of Google Health, the chief exec of NHS Comfort. Um, and I think that can only be a good thing because it's not just point and shoot. This is infrastructure change they're talking about. So story number two comes to us from the Health Tech newspaper, and the headline reads, Building and maintaining trust is crucial to realising the benefits of AI. CDEI publishes a portfolio of AI assurance techniques. What this is telling us is the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, which is part of the government's Department for Science, Innovation and Technology, has published this portfolio of AI assurance approaches and how it should be used. They say that the portfolio is useful for anybody in designing, developing, deploying, or procuring AI-enabled systems and showcases examples of AI assurance techniques being used in the real world to support the development of, and this is the crucial piece, trustworthy artificial intelligence. So 
this is a nice segue on from our last story where we've been talking about trust in technology, trust in data, um, and understanding how they're being used. But James, what's your take on this one in terms of building trust and I guess setting out this playbook for how we can do that? What I think this is, is a really nice maturing of the AI in healthcare space and its practical guidance on how to actually make it work in terms of building that trust with the people that buy it, the people that use it, the people who are affected by it. And it includes just a few things that I can name here. So doing an impact assessment, an impact evaluation, doing a bias audit, doing a compliance audit, certification, a conformity assessment, just to make sure it meets the expectations um, specified or claimed, you know, performance testing, formal verification. It seems obvious in terms of a checklist of the types of things that you would need to do to even adopt the AI or Burgess AI, get the AI going. But the fact that this exists now and the fact that these things are tied to how these will actually build trust, I think anyone that is looking to, you know, stick AI in their pitch deck can now have a nice framework to build out that statement in their pitch deck into, and now here's how we're going to build trust. And then those people that go and execute it are going to achieve it. And I think that's a really nice framework. So congrats to the Center for Data Ethics and Innovation, which I now know exists. Just, I've got a, just a couple of thoughts around, I'm making the assumption that this guidance is for those kind of the developers. So by the time it comes down into the NHS, we will already trust that it's all good to go. But I did think there are um, like your DPO, your data protection officers, you know, like there is quite a lot of people that are part of the commissioning process. So even though, for, and I can only speak from a primary care perspective, ICB may commission a tool which has been tried and tested and then we want to roll that out into general practice and you'll have DPOs with various different experiences you know and trying to get it past those people is going to be not tough I mean it may be tough in some instances but the that bit you know like there is there's so many checkpoints that needs to happen yes it the tool does what it says it's going to do and it's ethical and then it's like can we actually make it work? Can it get past the firewalls within the NHS? And how long is the due diligence process, even though the tool would have already gone through that process extensively? It's a good question. And I think going back to what we were saying before about that education piece around digital and data and how it can be used for clinicians, I think there's a really important role for it to play here in the commissioning of services too, because you're right, they do have to have that trust. And there are varied experiences and understanding and, you know, inherently trust in the technology broadly, but also specific solutions. And so I think that perhaps, you know, there is an education piece to be done there and I think what what for me, what is good about this is, as James said, it's the first step to consolidating or providing really clear guidance that hasn't really existed before, despite the fact it seems really obvious. And I think what this will then do is f filter into other regulatory processes like DTAC, like the MHRA. It will be then used to inform 
not just developers, but also the regulators for how to, I guess, assess the AI technologies and the capabilities so that when it comes to the commissioning, hopefully when they see that stamp of approval, it gives them a little bit more confidence. So I think it's that, but I also think you're right that there is probably an education gap that, you know, this stuff also has to filter through to the people who are going to commission it and also use it too. Because that, if there's a lack of trust at any one of those steps, then there, there's a break and it doesn't, it doesn't flow down and you don't get the benefits. Um, so I think that for me is an obvious next step. And now that we have this, how do we get people comfortable with it? How do we get people to understand it and understand what it means for them in their role? It's a really important starting point, I think, because as obvious as it may be. I think this is the framework that actually helps those people understand it. And I think if I'm someone that hasn't got a clue about AI, which is act, which, which is actually accurate in terms of a technical perspective, I don't know about AI. I actually spoke to on my podcast, a guy called Rob Brisk, who is a computer scientist and a doctor. And he was talking to me about large language models. And he was talking to me about all these like things like in technology, like multi-headed attention and all these different things, turning words into binary this and then combining them with like, that's how AI actually works and large language models actually work. I don't know those things. And actually, if I'm if I'm sitting as the sort of gatekeeper of letting an AI technology into my healthcare system, and I'm not from that world, of course I'm not a computer scientist or a technologist. I'm you know may or may not be, but you know the chances of everybody being able to do everything is very low. So actually, handing this to somebody and saying like, here's actually a framework now. Um, if you want to assess this AI, here's some things to assess it against. And actually trust is one of those things. And now you can blow out trust into like, well, what makes up trust? Well, actually, can we trust that it's not biased? Let's do a bias audit. Can we trust that it's compliant? Let's do a compliance audit. All of that is here. It's literally there. That's what you need to do. Um, and these are all the different categories that make up trust. So actually this becomes, I think it's a, a, you know, a piece in there toolkit to actually go well now i'm even more comfortable to bring this new technology and i think that's the thing there's that old trope in the nhs is about like nobody gets sacked for hiring mckinsey and what do the new challenges have to do to actually get in well you know you're probably quite likely to get sacked if you bring in an ai that doesn't work so you need every little bit of of justification for why you did try it or bring it in and i think that's always been a, a thing since since I was at the Digital Health London Accelerator, one of the things that I always just thought about how you could possibly change is how do you increase risk appetite? How do you how do you allow people to take risk on new technologies where it's not a, a detriment to them individually if it doesn't work? And I think this is a good example of that. Someone can point to it and say, look, I've done all these things. Um, and that's why I like these frameworks. That's why I like these really structured tick boxes almost of, well, they're scoring high on all this stuff and therefore, you know, can we bring this in and can we try it? I think that does lower the threshold for for the newer technologies and the challenger brands to come in. So yeah, that's, that's kind of why I like this. say, And I think the more I kind of listen, in order to achieve that, and this is, you know, this is how business works. You will have your developers and you'll have your users so they can work it out. They can do that design learning as they go along and work out, you know, that where they hit their risk tolerance, you know, like, no, you know, we can't go any further. So I think the more I look at it and I think there's an army of digital and transformation leads out there and you can adapt that. We, we might not need to go to that level now, but for some of the things that, you know, the tech is there. And I went to 
a conference the other day in a modality. It's a GP federation. They use, I've written down, like, is it AI, is it machine learning or is it automation? But they were using bots to automate some of their tasks and everybody was like, oh my God, they're, you know, their mind was blown. They couldn't imagine. They were so like, oh my God. And they were like, yeah, we've been doing it for ages. Um, so you need those case studies, you need those practices and peoples and the, you know, like the fast movers to test a lot of this stuff. And now they've got, yeah, a bit more security in taking the next step and i think um like all of all of what we said today just shows you like what the, the cdei is doing the job it was set up to do um i've been following it since like 2016 2017 since it started and it, it's literally there to provide those high level frameworks for ai data uh, you know the ethics the innovation the opportunities what's going on map the sector for things that are happening in like public services and a, a bit elsewhere as well and you know if it can provide these high level frameworks that that people do think are worth the paper they're written on then it's doing a great job for um you know a semi or non-departmental public body or whatever they are um if you don't know them if you haven't aren't following them already do like follow them on linkedin check them out because they've been doing some great work just to chart what that you know long before we all started talking about chat gpt at the end of last year they've been mapping and doing like quarterly updates of where ai is in use um and what it's been doing and horizon scanning about what's coming out so if you're if you're not already following them become a fanboy like me and um, <laughs> make sure that you're signed up to them on twitter and linkedin i'm now following on linkedin Hugh. so thank you for that Okay, story number three is a, another report that has been launched this week, and this time by Deloitte, talking about how we can achieve health equity in life sciences. Uh, so this one basically explores exactly what that means in life sciences, why life sciences value health equity, what they're currently doing, and perhaps some of the pitfalls. Now, I've not read this in any great detail, but what I did like is that they have really called out what we understand health equity to be. And sometimes I think there's often a, I think the terms equity and equality are used interchangeably, and it's always my preference to talk about equity. And how they've defined it is that health equity is the fair and just opportunity for every individual to achieve their full potential in all aspects of health and well-being, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, disability status, location, or age. These fair and just opportunities rely on understanding systemic bias, which is something we've just touched on before, and developing and allocating resources to accommodate differences in social, economic, and environmental experiences. Some of the stats in here are really interesting. It says that health inequities, and this is clearly US focused, but apparently they generate inefficient resource allocation, which costs approximately 100. 320 billion US dollars today and could eclipse. 1 trillion US dollars in annual spending if it's left unaddressed. So increased traction of value-based care could lower, could result in lower economic return for companies who fail to address social, economic, and environmental drivers of health. That's, that's huge. That's really huge. And it goes to show that it's not just a nice thing to do. There's a real commercial as well as moral and ethical argument behind this. Um, but also what they've established here is four domains for health equity in life sciences. So that's organisation, 
offerings, community and ecosystem. So for organisation, they say that the establish, establishing accountability among organisation organisational leaders for health equity, diversifying the workforce and addressing their their equity needs, for example, fair wages and pipeline for workforce development, and connecting health equity to business strategy. And clearly, there's a really strong case for that with the, with that data that we've just heard. Um, but ultimately, it's about adapting a changing profit model to create strategies for access and affordability and reducing silos to improving efficiency. Across offerings, they talk about data, R&D, manufacturing and commercial. For community, they talk about increasing shared decision making so involving communities in a meaningful way to build that magic word again trust and integrating underrepresented groups across company-wide activities and the product development life cycle so that's making sure that the the products that they develop are actually fit for purpose for the people who have that specific need that the product is addressing and then again on ecosystem they talk about local and diverse vendors engaging with them hiring and collaborating with them and wider stakeholders too from a policy advocacy and cross-industry perspective so you know there's a lot there but again it seems kind of obvious it's just it does seem obvious and I think when I read kind of articles like this I try I suppose I don't know if it's wrong or right, but always try to think about what does what does it what could this mean for me in the environment in which I work in. And one of the recommendations it says we could uh, organisations could consider participating in multi multi stakeholder cross industry collaborations aimed at addressing health equity challenges. And I think one of the things the NHS does really well and also really badly is try to work with multiple organizations and it's trying I mean it would say it probably does it really badly because we're so big and I think it's trying to work out at what scale does that collaboration need to happen and what you know what do those private and public partnerships look like but I suppose I can speak to type 1 diabetes and the medical devices and having organizations like Omnipod um, and Dexcom and they do have really vibrant communities they uh, utilize social media but I was I hate to say it that they someone said to me oh Tara can you come on this diabetes UK um steering group they don't have any black people wow yeah and it's a bit like <laughs> what do you say like Yes, no, you kind of, it's, so we know what the problem is. It's how do we try to bring people, communities in which don't have, they've got a big voice, but how do you get that voice heard? And the soft, you know, like there's a lot of soft skills, there's a lot of leadership skills, and there is a lot of understanding at what levels do we need to have which conversations and when do we bring the children in and when do we bring the parents in and are they hard to reach or can we not just be bothered to go out there? Um, so it's it's really, really complex. But I think articles like this make you think. And I think that the four domains, I mean, there are so many frameworks, but an NHS organization could look at those four frameworks and kind of have a conversation thing. Well, where, how are we approaching these things? You could do a little, you could, I think in the, the organizations I support, we could easily do a bit of a temperature check around this stuff. And it would all be like, you know, like red. <laughs> like, we're not really doing much. So I think it's helpful. I think it's a, it's it's thought provoking. But we do a lot of this stuff, but we don't do it very well. And there's no accountability to make us be better. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right in terms of that framework. But I also think it's a valuable framework for any company in healthcare 
and yeah. technology that is working with people. And you make a really interesting point about, you know, are, are we speaking to the right people or can we not be bothered? And I'm paraphrasing there, but, you know, I see this a yeah. lot in, in the work that we do where we hear from lots of different voices and whether it's events, whether it's in the media, whether it's on, you know, advisory boards for companies, those voices and that expertise is out there from diverse perspectives. And ultimately, we all, when we are putting those things together, we have responsibility to do the work. We have responsibility to not just go to the obvious places and the obvious people and consider all of those perspectives and go and find them in the in a place that might not be obvious to us necessarily or you know someone who perhaps you don't necessarily know so well but actually just asking the question and you know I guess coming from that place of you know there are lots of people I know that I could already ask but actually I want to make this really really valuable really meaningful and I want it to be representative and diverse and I think people do get lazy with it. And I've even been there where, you know, I've been in discussions and brought in as the woman in the room so that it's not just a table full of men rather than being brought in because I have a point of view to share. And I'm sure that, you know, they, they ex- much like in your example, they, they do absolutely see you as an expert and you have a point of view to share. But bring someone in on that basis and on that merit understand that it's your responsibility to find the people who have that um and it's it's a real pet peeve of mine I just find it so frustrating because it is just lazy I think it's I don't know if it's I think it's hard and I think you know when it's something is hard to do you don't you know like you procrastinate you don't do it so I think some people are lazy I think some people want to but they don't know it's hard being put in an environment that you're not sure you know like that's native to you So I definitely, I can can appreciate it. Um, But I think around diversifying the workforce Mm. um, and paying people fairly, Mm. it just, we have these conversations all of the time and growing that community. And I remember when I used to work at university, we had these things called KTP partnerships, knowledge transfer partnerships, where you'd bring private and public sector together um and they would work on a project and that was really good so from you know like we you guys talk a lot about education you know the next generation coming through and I think all universities do these KTPs and you have to bid for you know it's a really good experience of bidding for money understanding you know what does the industry bring what does the organization bring and they're starting to work together so by you know they when they get into the workforce this stuff won't be alien and there's just so, you know, I, I speak like I'm really old, but, you know, my kids will, the things they say and the things they watch and their friends and yeah, they, they, they think differently and hopefully they won't develop those biases and prejudices, prejudices, but we're in a situation where how do you, bre- how do you break this stuff down? Um, but I do think it's easy to look at these things and think it's, it's terrible, but there is a lot of work there is a lot of good work that happens and you will know this. And I think it's sharing and spreading that. But when that message is shared and spread, not just the highlight, not just aren't we amazing. It's like, what was the journey you took to get there? And for people to be really honest about that, you know, the things that they've got wrong and the things that they would do again. 
I think it's that. And I also think it's about, you, you talked about, um, I think you said consequences, maybe the, the consequences of not doing it or not, or maybe it's about incentive, right? So it is hard and we, we have to go on that journey, but I don't always think that people recognize the implications of not having these kinds of frameworks, these safeguards and these, and bringing in diverse perspectives early on until it's almost too late and, or they just don't viscerally personally feel the consequence of not having done that. And I think that's really difficult because you don't want to police it, but you, you want, you want them, you want people to understand the value and the importance and, and I guess come on that journey too. Um, and that's not something that A, happens overnight and B, that you can force on people. But I do absolutely agree that there's loads of really fantastic stuff going on, particularly in the NHS. And, you know, we heard some of that when we went to the NAIA Accelerator Showcase of the New Fellows and um, Professor Bola, she she gave us an amazing, amazing presentation on some of the initiatives that she'd been involved in. And it, it, it really gives you kind of cause for hope and excitement because I think you hear so much, as you said, about like the things that are not going right, that actually it sometimes drowns out the things yeah. that are and we should be holding those up as examples and us all looking at how do we learn from that and what can we implement for ourselves and in what we're doing. So that for me is really exciting and, you know, I think there's lots of great stuff going on, as you said. I think one of the things I worked with an ICB, um, it was their medicines optimization team, and they talked about golden threads and the golden threads across all of their works. And the reason why I'm saying this is sometimes it feels like it's, you know, like it's a project or it's somebody, mm. you know, like they're going to look at health equity now. But when we were developing the strategy for Kent and Medway, what went, they were like health, it was around health inequalities, but this is not a, yeah, which incorporates health equity it was like this is not a project this goes this is a golden thread which goes across all of our work streams so does sustainability and so does technology the, there is no technology department you know like <laughs> working on its own because it it touches absolutely everything and so does health inequalities and so does health equity so is trying to get this just this is the this is the business this is what we do this is how we serve our patients making this stuff just if I wouldn't say it's front and center but just what we do and it's just reminding people that and when you have conversations one-on-one -on -one, everybody says they love you know the best part of their job is the patients and they want to help and they want to make a difference but I think the other part you know like the bureaucracy the paperwork and all of the other stuff gets in the way but I think we all fundamentally want to be able to deliver care to all parts, everybody in the community and tailor that accordingly. Yeah. I think if you, if you run a business or you're part of a business and at least in part responsible for this stuff, it can feel really overwhelming, this type of article and this type of four pillars of things you need to do in your organization and for the community and for the, it can feel quite overwhelming. And I think the biggest thing that, are, in fact, here's a good analogy, right? When LinkedIn has their algorithm report or some people compile the LinkedIn algorithm report, there's all of these different things that you should do for LinkedIn. You should post and then engage with three or four posts. You should go on at this time. You should, 
I don't know, face your computer east and do a dance to the rain gods and then post and then you're going to do something. <laughs> like there's all of this nonsense of like blah, blah, blah. But actually, I remember looking at all this and I actually wrote this as a comment on somebody that was talking about like, God, this is all ridiculous. Like who's going to take care of all this stuff when they post on LinkedIn? When you look at it though, all of the things that they were saying to do, like comment on other people's posts after you've posted, like if you're going to like and share to do the, it's actually just being a good online digital community member that does not only just post stuff, but engages with others and builds community around you and engages with the whole platform. So you don't need to necessarily look at the minutiae to be really good at LinkedIn. You just need to be a good engaged digital member of that LinkedIn community. And actually you're going to tick 90% of those boxes from looking at them. I feel like it's the same thing for this. If you just care, if you, if you just care about health equity, you're going to get to most of this as they pertain to your business and your sector and the things that you do. I think you do just hit these things. And I think that for me is, you know, as a business owner and trying to grow a team and all those things is incredibly reassuring that actually you can look at this and instead of getting overwhelmed, you can actually just go, well, if we had all these functions, how would we run them? And the chances are, again, you're going to hit 80, 90% of these and a few of them obviously on top you can learn from. Of course we all can. But I, I think it's that for me. I think that ultimately the the people who are going to win are going to be the ones that are doing this because they cared a long time ago. Look at Patagonia. Here's a good example. But look at Patagonia. They're, they're a really good example of a company that has extreme values and live those values and have since the inception of the company. And the consumers feel that and they love that brand. And that brand is all about equity and equality and giving back to community. And But, but they, they live it. They actually are doing it. And the consumers can feel that. And I think what they're talking about in this article is like, this is not just a tick box, it's a market force. And it is a market force to do all of these things. It's even better if you actually do them and you care about them because you're going to do them a lot easy. But it's a market force because everybody else in your community is going to be looking for these things. They're going to be looking for you to be a valued member of the community that's contributing to the ecosystem that's doing things for the right reasons in the right way and caring about diversity and caring about all these things. And so they talk a lot about ecosystem and partnerships. They talk a lot about making sure that you're not just working as an individual, making sure that you're working within your entire ecosystem and community. Talk a lot about that. And I think that's it. I think it is a case of just caring about doing that. And chances are you're going to be doing this anyway. And if you're not, well, all the other people in that community are probably not going to work with you. And that's the strong driving market force. Um, and it's really coming. 100% agree on that, James. And like a lot, a lot, when I read this, a lot of it chimed with uh, work that I used to do in a previous role at Social Mobility Commission, working with employers on you know building up those processes, building up the kind of things that need to happen in an organization. And I think this framework aligns with a lot of the kind of advice that we would provide. I think the one thing that's startlingly absent from the um, from the article. The, the, the only thing that's missing almost is exactly what you were saying there and it's culture um, and it's not enough for one person to care it's got to be a cultural thing that you care it's and I think that's what you're saying about Patagonia everyone there cares it's part of the brand it's part of the company it's what they do and like 
as a CEO, you could care, but you might not have enough time to drive it. As a board member, you could care, you might not have enough time to drive it. As an employer, uh, employee at a junior or uh, mid-level, mid you could care, but you don't have the sponsorship to drive it. Everyone has to care. Like This has to be something that is pervasive throughout your organization. It is something that you all have to look at, be like, as well as the things that make us us, this is one of the things that makes us us. No matter who you are, this is something that matters to you. And that's when you can look at this framework and say, we can do that because we're always thinking about doing it. We're always trying to meet meet and hit every one of these targets because it's not because it's a tick box. It's because it's the right thing to do. And it's we believe that truly. How, how how do you build and maintain culture, Tara? Like, do you do you think about this? I mean, you must think about this in the hiring process and how you manage your team. And I don't know. I, I'm, I'm interested because you're someone that that certainly has a brand, and clearly, all of the things that you put out online, they all kind of have this this optimism to them, this professionalism to them, this deeply caring about the work that you do. Like all of that comes out in the stuff that I see and read and listen to, but it's across all of you because you're all sort of involved in that. So as the leader of that, of that team, like, like how do you do it? So we did, I think it's like, I just say somebody, I'm like textbook. I did my MBA and everyone's like, why'd you do that? But that's like, it taught me about culture. It taught us about values. We did have like a value statement. And then when probably about six months ago, I was like, does this feel true? And they were like, no, it feels a bit wordy. So we did our, we looked at our values we're all in and we really debated what did it mean to be all in. We're results driven. We have to deliver and um, we celebrate inclusivity. I mean, I've sacked people for saying really inappropriate things. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. Um, and I've had to, I can share an example where somebody um, had a name that they found hard to pronounce and they said, well, why can't they just be called this? And it was like, because that's their name. That's their name. So how do I do it? I am very, I'm vocal about what is important to me. When we did our when we did our recruitment for the last role, it was like I do I did I did a series of three videos. And I say diversity is really important as part of the induction process. Like we've done um our business of healthcare scholarship. Um, I'm trying to, we work with our, how we work with from a partnership perspective, we work with the God for Good campaign and DKMS and they're all about trying to get as many people from diverse backgrounds onto the blood stem cell, um, blood stem cell um, repository. So I think that a bit, I'm not holier than now by any means, but it's important to me. And if you don't believe that, you, you, that you will, you will not be happy in this team and there it sounds harsh but there's not there's not a place for you in this team I don't and I think I've done unconscious bias we have got we have we all have unconscious bias and going back to just it is hard it is hard and when but I'm really pleased and I'm really proud about we've got eight full-time employees in the team and I've got Valentina is Italian, um, Nikita um, has got an Asian background, Oalabi, me and Oalabi are Nigerian. We've got Lauren from the North. I mean, she, Lauren's, it, 
it's fascinating. Like, the most tropical so, of all the places. So different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the people from the north and the south are different. Um, so we've got um, Lauren from North Sound and we've also got people we're based in southeast. And, you know, I think it's really hard. How do you get diversity in such a small organisation? But actually, if I can, there is no excuse. It depends on how important it is, how important it is. But I can't, I don't know, I just... I think I attract people that feel the same and I want to repel people that do not. I don't want to fight you. I just don't have time for you and you don't have time for me and that's fine. But, and that that's kind of how I live and walk my, how, how I do it. But I, I am trying and I have to kind of check myself sometimes and think about the sorts of people that I want to work in THC and the age range. And I, I read a book, I think it was Alex Ferguson. He talked about, you know, the importance of having, you know, like an age profile across the football team. And I think about that. I need more young people in the team. I need a young voice in the team. Probably need the spectrums. I need somebody that is walk the talk, been there, done it, got the t-shirt. And I also need a young whippersnapper that's like, you know, can teach us about TikTok and things like that. So I am thinking about the age of our organization because we're pretty young. We've got lots of experience, but I want to be, I want this organization to be around for a long, long time. And I think what has worked, you, you have to tell people this is important to me and not assume that they would think the same or that they would know that it's important to you. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think what you're saying about un- unconscious bias is really important to you, recognizing that we do all have that and actually none of us are perfect. And in terms of culture, being prepared to call yourself out on that and be really honest and transparent about, about those things where you haven't got them right and and what we can learn together from that and how we move forward and, and do something differently next time so that that doesn't happen again it's hard enough as it is without holding ourselves to a a perfect standard and knowing that we are fallible and that we can still care very deeply about this and still have the capacity to not get it right. Um, And I think being really compassionate with ourselves and with our team members, as you said, you know, ultimately I do believe you attract the right people um, and it's about sharing values. And I think it's about, yeah, intent and recognizing that, sometimes we just don't get things wrong and let's compassionately we don't just get things right let's compassionately learn together and I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as leaders to hold that perfect standard knowing that it's not possible for any of us and that is okay too definitely there's a couple of this might be really silly small examples but when my full name maiden name is Atari Atavuego and that's a mouthful. <laughs> you know, like, people look at that and think, what? Like, and it kind of got shortened to Tara and then I got married. Um, and when, sometimes when I see people's name and it's kind of compounded from COVID because we're all online. And you know, like if you see, I used to see someone's name and think, I don't know how to pronounce that. So I'd leave them last. And now if I ever find myself in that situation, I will ask them first because who wants to be last all the time? I was last all the time because people are, uh, 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 and just ask them. And this, another thing I did, we need to have the conversation, but it's pride month. And you know, you see, and I did a podcast and um, with a lady called Alex and she t- called it, you know, like rainbow washing or pink washing that when there is, um, 
an awareness week, month, everybody jumps on the bandwagon. And I was so close to posting and I thought, no, this is a conversation that we need to have in the team. This is not about the awareness month, it's about making us aware. And what does that mean for, what does that mean for THC? And what do you think? Because my sister-in-law is gay, you know, like, so I think going back to that, it's like I try to live it and not be like, say we, it's not for social media. It's for the business. And I do believe we'll be more profitable. We'll have more longevity and people will stay because we are truly walking our talk and we're not just saying it for the likes. The last thing you want is for the first time that your team hear you talk about a potentially sensitive or difficult topic or a topic that requires, again, that compassion and attention. The last thing you want is for the first time they see it to be on LinkedIn or on Twitter. And it's something that we actually counsel our clients on really heavily where they'll say, should we do something like this or should we do something on that? What is your intent and why do you want to do that? Or what conversations are you having internally? And what can we talk about that is relevant to what it is that you're doing, your culture and what you care about? Otherwise, it's almost insulting. So let's let's focus on the internal piece before we start rainbow washing, as you say. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, but, it's, uh, but going back to, you know, like we're all leaders, we're all learning. We're all learning. And I think you just try to be the best that you can do be and then hold your hands up when you do, when you yeah. do get it wrong. And I get it wrong like every day. Do yeah. you know what I mean? There's always something I think, oh shit, I've not done this. I've not done that. I've not done this. Um, but the intention is, I think nobody can deny my intention. Mm. Yeah. We're all just doing our best at the end of the day. Well, I think that is the perfect note to wrap up today's news and not quite so brief, but it's been a really fun one and some really interesting and actually in-depth conversations that we've had about some really important topics and I've really enjoyed it. But for the benefit of our listeners, Tara, tell us a little bit more about THC and what it is that you do. We provide operations management to primary care networks and we also provide facilitation and consultancy to primary care networks, integrated care boards, GP federations and organisations trying to work in primary care. No wonder you're so busy. (laughs) And I also host the Business of Healthcare podcast. Which is very much worth a listen and a subscribe if you are not already. She has some amazing guests, fantastic conversations. So you need to listen into that one. But before we finally finish, Tara, if people want to find out more about what it is that you're up to or they want to get in touch, where can they find you? Probably the best place is, is probably LinkedIn. I am addicted. Um, so yeah, find me, Tara Humphrey. Um, I work for THC. You'll find me on LinkedIn or at our website, www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. We're very active on our blog. Perfect. And everyone will be able to find all the links in the description below the podcast, wherever you listen to it. So go and find Tara. Thank you, everyone, and see you next week.